angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, thank you for your word and for the richness of it for the breadth of it, for the way in which it touches every corner of our lives, for the way in which it lays before us every hope that we would need. We pray that you would unfold the word for us, and Lord, that you would fix our hearts upon you as our greatest delight. Stir in us a deeper and deeper love, even as we are commanded in Deuteronomy and shown in this passage. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Eugene Peterson wrote a book entitled Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. And in the book, he, he really points to the way in which Christ, if we, were, if we had our eyes open, the way in which Christ is visible to us in almost everything in life. Or, I should say, in everything in life. One of the uh, statements he makes in the book is this. It is the very nature of storytelling to include us, the hearers, in the story. If you've ever heard a good story or read a good story, then somewhere along the way you were drawn into that story and made a part of it. How many of you have read The Lion, The Witch, in the wardrobe, and suddenly found yourself walking through the West Woods, staring at the lantern that mysteriously is rooted in the midst of the trees. Or perhaps you've read Kenneth Graham's The Wind in the Willows and felt yourself carried along in an adventure on the river with Mole and Ratty. Or maybe you have trudged through the foggy, grimy streets of London, gathering clues with Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson in the adventures. Storytelling includes us in the story. The story we enter into in the Bible is huge. It's huge. It's the greatest epic of all time. There are lots of smaller stories and interweavings and subplots, but really there is one overarching story that holds them all together. 
And it is a story that comes from beyond the origin of the cosmos. It is the story of a hero. It's the story of a hero. It begins with a wise, good, and beautiful creator making everything beautiful, including mankind, and then continues with the collapse of mankind into rebellion and ruin and ugliness. It goes on to tell of the creator's merciful promise to send a hero known as the seed of the woman in order to crush his enemy, to tell of the creator's work to mercifully claim a people for himself by grace and to make them beautiful again, of the arrival of the hero and his loving attitude or actions toward every human he meets. But not everyone loves him back. Yet the hero stands strong even as he is resisted, rejected, and in ugliness is brutally put to death. But he is a real hero, one who overcomes hatred, a real hero who overcomes rejection and death because he is righteous. And this real hero is crowned as a king who will never, ever lose his crown. We're coming to the end of the story. That's what's going on in the book of Revelation. This is the end of the story. The epic is ascending to its powerful and happy conclusion. The hero who is now a king is getting ready to fully wipe out his enemies, and he's going to do this because he loves his people. But before he does that, he wants his people to make certain that they are really his people. And so he comes to them in love, and he points out how much they still need him to make them beautiful. This is where we are. This is where we are in this story. That's what these letters to the churches are all about. Each church faces a different kind of problem, internal or external within themselves, in their own broken tendencies, or outside of themselves, in the broken and rebellious expectations of the surrounding world. And the hero, still leading them in a path that he has walked, points out what that church needs to see, what those believers need to see, and then to correct. The problems that we see in these churches are sadly not out of the ordinary for all churches throughout the ages, and even in our age, something that I sometimes get to see as an interim pastor. They're the same kinds of things that we see because human nature manifests the same brokenness, and the hero never changes Here are some of the problems that we've seen. Having a zeal for doctrine, but losing love for the hero. That's what we saw in the church in Ephesus. Holding tightly to the hero's name, but giving in to competitors that want equal time with the hero. That's what we saw in Pergamum. Having love for the hero, but doing things that the hero finds disgusting. That's Thyatira. Having a great reputation with those who are around you, but not promoting the hero's name. That's what we find in Sardis. And in a couple of weeks, we will see 
that one of the problems is being lukewarm toward the hero and toward his purposes, as if they are boring and insignificant. But there are two churches in these seven that the hero does not rebuke. Smyrna and this one, Philadelphia. But the question is why? Why don't they get a rebuke? How come they don't get that challenge? What are they doing right that they get a pass from the critical eye of the hero? Well, they're not doing anything. That's a change, right? They're not doing anything. They get a pass because of what's being done to them. They're in a crucible. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in ancient Persia, they are in the furnace for their faith. These two churches are under serious trial. They're under serious persecution. And while in this situation, they are holding on unswervingly and uncompromisingly to the hero's name and his purposes. I need not tell you that the hero is our Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam. And Jesus himself tells us the reason for his tenderness toward them, his affirmation of them. It's in his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's from Matthew chapter 5. These churches have entered the age-old battle, even the same one that they faced in the garden when this garden of God, when Adam was faced with the choice to compromise with evil. It's the same battle our Lord entered into when he was incarnate among us. Now, we need to understand that a rebuke does not equal rejection. As Jesus rebukes his churches, he's loving them. As Jesus rebukes his churches, uh, he does not mean that those churches are not truly his. Nor does it mean that there is nothing good going on in them. Even though Jesus rebukes us, it is not done harshly. He does it with his great love for us. He shed his blood for us. He wants the very best for us. And we need to hear again the words that we find in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So as Christ comes to the churches and rebukes them, he is loving them. He's loving them with 
a, a careful care for their souls, their holiness, their well-being. Proverbs 27.6 says to us, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And Romans reminds us, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, forgetting that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So the Lord Jesus does this with each and every one of his churches. And yet, as we see with with, um, Sardis and Philadelphia, we see that there are promises that are given to us in order to encourage us along the way. So then as the Lord addresses us, he sets this promise before those who conquer, for those who overcome the particular challenges that they face. It's these promises that I want to concentrate on this morning, not just here in the church to Philadelphia, but the promises collected from all of these churches, for we too need these promises and need to be reminded of them. So I'm going to look at those really briefly this morning, pool them together, and then encourage you with them, I hope. So the first promise is this. As you return to your first love for Christ, he will give you to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Our taste buds have been ruined, by the way. We can only possibly imagine what the tree of life tasted like. The sweetness. The fragrance the long-lasting satisfaction that comes from that tree and its fruit. So the first promise is, as you return to your first love for Christ, he will give you to eat of the tree of life. The second promise is, as you endure persecution by being faithful unto death, Christ will give you the crown of life and will not let you be hurt by the second death. There is a second death. There is something that's beyond the physical death of this life. And that second death is something that we will not taste of as we endure persecution and are faithful unto death. As you conquer the pressure to make room for competing deities and don't give in to immorality then Christ will enable you to feed on the bread of heaven. That's the third promise. And he will give you a white stone with a new name. That white stone is a declaration that you are not guilty. Not guilty. And you're given a new name the way that um, Jacob was given the new name, Israel. The way that Saul of Tarsus was given the new name, Paul. The way that Cephas was given the new name Peter, or Simon was given the new name Peter. We will feed on the bread of heaven and be given a white stone with a new name. The next promise is, as you keep Christ's works to the end, not countenancing or adopting wicked immoral practices, you will rule with Christ over the nations, and you will be given the morning star. The morning star is Christ himself. And we will rule with him. The next promise is, as you resist the accolades and praises of a Christless culture, the Lord will give you a robe of righteousness, and you will not be ashamed. 
and he will not be ashamed of you. And you will be acknowledged before the Father. The next promise, as you hold fast the testimony, which is what we have here in Philadelphia, as you hold fast the testimony of the Lord in the face of the fiery trial, Christ will make you a pillar in his Father's temple. And God's name will be written upon you. Each of these are treasures beyond our ability to purchase. Each of these are treasures that are beyond our ability to acquire in any way. They are treasures that are bestowed upon us by grace. That is, we don't deserve them. God, in his great loving kindness, grants them to us. He gives them to us. The last promise is this. As you stop being lukewarm about Christ and seek his riches with zeal and focus, Christ will grant it to you to sit on the throne and to rule with him. These promises should sustain us because they actually speak to almost every longing that our human heart has. As we, are, as we have a passionate heart for the Lord Jesus and resist the pull to immoral practices, then we will see ourselves satisfied with something which is larger and more eternal. We need this. You need this. On a daily basis, we all need this. And as, the re, we resist the, to, if we, as we resist compromising with the world and we endure antagonism of the world, we are granted that assurance and that satisfaction and the testimony that we are truly sons and daughters in our Father's kingdom. To eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God is to have the very paradise that we long for restored. Why do we move from one section of the country to the coast, and from the coast to the mountains, and from the mountains to the places of luxury? It's because we are looking for and longing for paradise. And God says, I have that for you. To enable us to feed on the bread of heaven and being given a white stone is to have our spiritual sustenance restored, innocence restored in the marriage feast. We pile our tables high with food and all kinds of different sorts of food and drink, knowing that those things won't satisfy, they'll only last a little while. And what we really want is to feed on the bread of heaven which satisfies us forever to have our innocence restored so that we may stand before God naked and unashamed, but rather even better, clothed in the righteousness of Christ and unashamed. God promises to give us the robe of righteousness. And what that means is that we'll have our righteousness restored and our standing as beloved children restored. No longer orphans, having God's speaking to us and saying, my son, my daughter, you're mine, and I'm never going to let you go. To be made in the pillar in the temple is to have our faithful priesthood restored. To have the crown of life given to us is to have life restored and be able to reign and rule with Christ. And finally, to have that actual sense of dominion restored to us in the proper way. All these things were stripped from us. And even in this life, as we attempt to achieve them, 
we find them just beyond our grasp because they are not grasped by anything that we can do. They are received by an open hand, humbly before the Lord, because he gives them by grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Christ continually says to the church, stop doing the things that cannot satisfy you. Stop doing the things that will only leave you still hungry, still thirsty, still longing for dominion, still craving righteousness, still looking for standing, when in fact all of those things are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as the poet Francis Thompson has said in The Hound of Heaven, God speaking, all which I took from thee I did but take, not for thy harms, but just that thou mightest seek it in my arms. All which your child's mistake fancies it lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. What what then shall it be for us? Will it be the baubles of the world or the promises of God? Shall it be the fullness of life that this temporal and passing world offers, which dissolves and disappears ever so quickly, or the tree of life and the crown of life eternal in paradise? Shall it be the fading pleasures of the flesh here, or the bread of heaven and the marriage feast with the Lamb? Shall it be the approval and accolades of a world in rebellion? Or will it be the approval of the eternal one who will acknowledge you as your father and you as his son or daughter? And so the exhortation time and time and time again in these letters comes through. Conquer. Conquer in Christ. Conquer in Christ and enter into the eternal promises that will satisfy your soul forever. Conquer by the grace that is given to you through the cross of the Lord who laid his life down for you. He's your hero. You're not your hero. He is your hero. Don't turn aside. Conquer. Conquer in Christ. Let's pray.